You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and its select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Monster Talk is supported by listeners like you. Find out how you can contribute via Patreon or with reviews at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Your contributions, large or small, make a huge difference. Thanks. Hey there, Monster Talk listeners. Karen and I are getting ready to head to Texas for LubbockCon this weekend. If you're in the area, stop by and see us in Lubbock, Texas, Saturday, February 23rd, 2019 at LubbockCon at 2 p.m. in the Civic Center, Room 101. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. In this episode, we begin an intermittent series on what I'm calling monstrous medicine. I think we're going to have some interesting and macabre topics to cover around the history of medicine as it evolved over the past couple of thousand years. Up first in this series, we welcome Australian author Mike McRae, who's going to talk with us about his new book, Unwell, which looks at the meaning of the entire concept of disease. I wouldn't give this episode an explicit tag, but we do talk a good bit about some disturbing terms and ideas, and we talk about human sexuality. So if you've got kids who listen, you just need to be aware of that. As a parent, I like to be forewarned. Although, to be honest, my kids have reached the age where they're more likely to shock me than vice versa. Monster Dog. Off the air, Karen introduced me a little bit to who you are, but could you give a bio for the listeners who won't know who you are? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a, an Australian-based science writer. Um, I write for a science news service called Science Alert, which uh, some readers might know of. Um, my background is um, all over the place. So I started in pathology many years ago. I used to test bloods and urines and any other bodily fluid you can name. And um, I worked in a hospital doing that. I moved from that into teaching. So I've taught uh, in the UK. I've taught in various places over Australia. Um, and I moved from that then into writing and developing educational resources. So I've written for children's magazines. I've developed uh, various educational programs. Um, and I kind of do a mix of things these days. So in addition to Science Alert, I write books such as Unwell. 
And I also uh, freelance for educational groups and other news services. So Karen mentioned that you had met through the Australian skeptics. How were they doing as a as an organization lately? Couldn't tell you. I have had very little to do with skepticism um, over the past, say, five years or so, um, largely because I found a lot of the values that I hold in that um, I can apply directly into science communication and education. So that hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. Um but I think as a community, um, I, I sort of found there were two types of people in the community. There are those people who are practically minded and those people who are morally minded. Uh, moral skeptics tend to be the ones who get quite upset and, and angry when somebody doesn't share their views. And they tend to isolate and ostracize those people and almost vilify them in a way. Um, I prefer the more practical side, which says, how do we change the world? How do we actually help people understand things differently and that often requires you stepping into their shoes and understanding how they got there and that can be quite uncomfortable for people who don't have that moral mindset um so i find it easier just to kind of go alone i was going to say we've certainly seen the the same thing here in the, the u.s with not only the organizations but the community itself yeah, absolutely. And you see it also in science communication to a point. I think it's all over the place. It's a human thing to do. Mm-hmm. So yes. it's not like, you know, I get frustrated. It's more just, it's, it's just easier sometimes, I think, finding those people who share a practical goal and say, how do, how do we work towards actually changing things without seeing them as the enemy? Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I have a tremendous amount of empathy. And that's not always uh, 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 appreciated, I think, maybe in the ex- hyper-rational world. So... <laughs> Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Empathy is a place you kind of have to start in a way. I mean, I think that's one of the things in education I've found um, over the years is if you're teaching students and you're wanting to actually give them the skills and the, the knowledge and the ability to, to think critically, the first thing that you need to give them is the ability to empathize with how did somebody else come to that belief? You know, you can't just reduce it to stupidity. You can't reduce it down to what they call in education, the deficit model, which says you don't have this information. I'll give it to you. Now you you have it. And it's just, it's not how it works. And so you kind of have to say, well, how did you get there? How do I put my brain into yours and go, right, I see the steps you made. And how do I use your values to kind of try to help you arrive at a conclusion that's going to help you? And it's not always possible, but it's the most practical way to actually changing minds. It sounds very pragmatic. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a practical problem in the yeah. end. You know, education is, is a practical thing. You get so many teachers that are so upset with with students you know you're not trying hard enough you're being lazy and it's like you know it's I, I had an interview with a with a newspaper here recently and the conversation sort of found all these overlaps between medicine and education both of them are practically minded things to say how do we take something that is not good you don't value it I don't value it and how do we advance to a place that we all appreciate and like and that means it's a practical problem how do we change things how do we actually move things along to a practical outcome otherwise it's just about you being angry that the world isn't the way that you want it which, which we all get but that's a, that's a discussion down the pub where you vent it's not a practical way to changing the world true enough <laughs> <laughs> So, Mike, we you mentioned Unwell, and we invited you on the show today to talk about Unwell, which is your latest book, and I believe it's published through the University of Queensland Press. Press, that's right. Yeah. Um, so, what can you tell us a little bit about the book and what inspired you to write Unwell? 
So unwell is an exploration of what makes one thing a disease and something just simply an undesirable trait or something we don't like. Um, I think it goes back to um, to many parts of my life. I, I keep trying to find the starting point. Part of it, I think, might have been that I, I grew up with uh, a father who battled with alcoholism. And uh, one of the things he, he quite often said was, you know, son, you have to understand this is a disease. And I couldn't comprehend, you know, the difference between somebody choosing to put a drink in their mouth and, and, and be this way and somebody with a disease and, you know, and how he dealt with that. Um, I then went into pathology and um, that's very much a, uh, a clear clinical process. You know, you get in body fluids and you test them and you get a number and that number will tell you something. And either you're close to that number, you're on that number or you're over it. And that gives you a diagnosis. This person now has a disease and you go back to the care provider and you give them the information and then they, they provide a, a plan. But in your mind, it's still, this is a clear line. We have diseases or we don't have diseases. And I think I've always kind of struggled with this concept of like, well, who gets to determine what this disease is? How do we find them? Is, is it like you have dinosaur bones, you dig them up and you go, here is a disease. We didn't know this existed. Or do we kind of invent it as we go along? Um, my previous book was Tribal Science, and that had a lot to do with this uh, fuzzy line between what is science and what's not science, and how do we communicate that? How do we think scientifically? So this was almost the next step on. It was, well, how do we think about our health? You know, where is that fuzzy line between somebody feeling healthy and, and on top of things and somebody having a disease? And I love the, the history and the culture that goes into that. So that kind of culminated in writing Unwell. So how, how do you define a disease as opposed to, say, a condition or a disorder, or at least within the context of your book? Well, I don't go into too much detail about what defines, say, syndrome from condition, disease, you know, disorder, because it, it's kind of a fuzzy mix of things as it is with that. Uh, I kind of stand back and just kind of say, well, what, what really separates this disease concept from health? And there's kind of two answers to that. Um, one's a bit more trite than the other one. The simple answer is there is a group of people who decide for us. So you'll have authorities in the world who um, will have debates and discussions about this. And every now and then they'll put out big books and those books will have whole lists of diseases in them. Um, you know, one of them is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which looks at mental health. And another one is the International Classification of Diseases. But they're both made by groups of people who uh, put these out every now and then. And that if you're a care provider, um, you turn to that book and you find a code and it breaks everything down in a very methodical way. So for most of us, um, it is an authority-based decision. The thing is, there's also a philosophical conversation behind that. People who make these big books and kind of determine what is and is not a disease have a debate about these things in the lead up. So a recent um, uh, edition of the ICD came out, number 11, or at least the draft version has, um, and that has changes in it. So an example of that is gaming disorder is now considered a bona fide disease. It wasn't previously before. If you played too much computer games, then, you know, that was just an issue you had to deal with. Whereas now you can actually go along and have a talk to your doctor. You can talk to your psychologist and they have a code that they can go to to uh, provide certain benefits because you now have a disease. Um, but that didn't come out of nowhere. There was a big conversation that went into that, and that meant that they looked at the literature, they looked at petitions, they looked at um, discussions that are happening out there in conferences, 
And it's a slow build up to say, you know, maybe this thing we've been talking about should be considered disease. You know, we can label it in certain ways. We can look at certain physiologies. And there's a lot that informs that. Now, what that philosophy is actually determined by is what I kind of explore in the book. And it, it sort of comes down to three things. So our culture of disease in, is informed by um, looking at what we consider to be biological normality. So, you know, we look around us and there's variation. But if you have a disease, you're different to most of those variations in some way. You know, I've got a lot of grey hair, but no one's going to tell me that I've got a disease unless that grey hair actually happened, you know, when I was five. And then someone says, well, that's not a normality we're used to. So you're different. But that difference alone doesn't give you a disease. So the next step is, does that difference actually interfere with how you engage with a responsibility in society? So all of us have certain expectations. That expectation might be that you have to work. You know, you have to get up out of bed each day and go and contribute. Maybe you're in part of a culture that doesn't have uh, a capitalistic way of seeing things, but you still engage in another way. You might do, need to do uh, some hunting or gathering or bringing food into the community. Um, there's other expectations. You can't sit in a bus and talk to yourself. People expect something of you, a certain um, cordiality, or they expect you know for you to not inspire fear in others. So you have to behave in a certain way. There's also a look. You know, you have to look a particular way because otherwise people might be a bit uncomfortable. You're expected to be of a certain weight. You know, you're expected to look a certain way or you're not fulfilling the obligations and the requirements of society. But there's a third one we don't think too much about, and that is you can be different and you won't fit certain social norms, but it has to not be your fault. You know, you have to um, kind of not have responsibility of this state. If you do, if you chose to be this way, then you might not have a disease or an illness. So you can take a hangover, for instance. You can ring up and say, look, I'm feeling a bit ill, but no one's going to say you have a disease because you got up one morning and said, I'm hungover, because you put that alcohol into your system the night before. But if you wake up and say, look, I've um, got food poisoning, you know, I didn't mean to, then people are going to start thinking of that in more of a disease-like fashion. And the way we behave towards a hangover is going to be very different to the way we behave towards, um, you know, having a uh, having food poisoning. So, it, again, it's a bit of a fuzzy line, and that's why we have debates about this. But there's a lot of this philosophy that goes into what do we determine is the difference between you having a disease and you simply not feeling well or simply not fitting a certain obligation. So a little while ago, you mentioned alcoholism. So how is that classified today? Uh, because you were talking in terms of responsibility and blame. Um, is this seen as a an addiction or is it seen as more of a disease or a mental illness nowadays? Well, I mean, the, the simple answer again is yes. So, you know, you can be seen as an alcoholic and have a disease. But, I mean, the history mm -hmm. behind that is actually what, you know, is almost a focal point for this. So you can go back a, a good century or so to looking at the history of alcoholism, which was one of the first debates on is this a disease or not. So you had a lot of medical professionals to be looking at this question and, you know, the origins of alcoholics, uh, alcohol anonymous, for instance, is wrapped up in this question where you had somebody who didn't have a medical background who did a lot of pseudoscience. You know, they sort of went out and, and interviewed people and came up with this categorization, the steps that you, you went through to classify you as being an alcoholic. Um, and it looked quite rigorous, but really when you pull it apart, there wasn't a lot of rigor to it. So there's been this debate to kind of say, well, is it your fault? Are you going out and you're drinking? And, you know, where does the you start and stop? Or is it your physiology? And, 
it's still a debate today. You know, we still debate about addiction. We still say, well, where do you stop and your body start? And, you know, the interesting thing is the conversation is shifting slowly. So this whole disease model that we've had for the past 100, 150, 200 years is gradually evolving to where we're kind of saying, well, where does that matter? You know, the practicality of it kind of says, we don't want you to suffer and we don't want society to suffer. How do we change that? So psychology is starting to blend more with neurology and and psychiatry and, you know, medicine is starting to blur together to kind of say, you're an individual, how do we help you? But it is a slow process. So we may see in years to come this whole disease model, these great big books of disease are getting more and more complicated, kind of fall apart and we'll look at medicine in a completely different way. That that would be really interesting. I, I, I it sounds like you know there's there's a couple of components going on. You've got the medical uh, oversight sort of view, but you also have society sort of defining how how diseases are perceived. I, I, I'm thinking here about not only uh, new things like the video game addiction, but you know how alcoholism, where where society gets to say uh, for right or wrong, that they 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 think about. Uh, an individual's ability to control their own behavior, you know, like the self-determination factor. And, and w- when you're dealing with something that um, is potentially uh, like has a moral stigma associated, like when AIDS happened, a lot of people felt like, well, AIDS was tied to morality. Like if people hadn't have had the sort of behaviors that would lead to contamination with the virus, then they they wouldn't have gotten the disease, and in that in some way because they were behaving in a way that they felt was immoral, that they somehow deserved the disease. Did you do you cover that in the book? Absolutely. In fact, it's one of the the core themes in the book that I keep going back to is is the fact that disease is really as hard a moral concept in many ways. You can't pull apart the morality from the disease. You know, nature doesn't give a shit what your variation is. You know, you you sort of you're different in some way, and nature provides variation because, well, you know, that's how we evolve. We have variation within a species, variation at a genetic level. You know, the environment shifts. There's difference, but it's we humans who then kind of say, what do we value as a community? You know, what's important to us? Some things are going to be important in one culture that are not important in another, and so you'll have variation in what we consider to be that defining line of disease. The other point that you made was um, to do with, you know, that that whole volition thing, that culpability. Where do you start and stop? And interestingly, science doesn't really have an answer to say, well, where does your free will start? You know, where does it stop? We, we sort of treat the whole consciousness free will thing as a little bit of a first-year philosophy student type discussion. You know, yeah, it, it's in the too hard basket and it's something that young students debate and we don't talk about anymore. Because it is quite hard to to kind of discuss any scientific way. We don't even have a, a philosophical definition of it. So when we then look at it in terms of not just health and medicine, but in law, um, other areas of society that kind of say, you know, who are you and how much influence do you have over your biology? We've, we've drawn a line. We kind of say, well, on one side, you do have control and the other you don't. But we don't know what that line looks like. Yet there is so much that does depend on it. So, you know, one area I do go into in the book is with mental health and the legal system. So, you know, we have things like the insanity plea, for instance, which kind of says, look, I wasn't in my right mind or I didn't have control over what I was doing. And the courts debate this, but there is nothing in science that kind of says, oh, hang on a second. Yeah, you didn't have that line. Look at, yeah, let's look inside your brain and find where volition starts and stop. Where is your agency? So we've got these big things, these big definitions that sort of, rely very heavily on something we don't 
even have a definition for, let alone understand. And there's lots of consequences to that. It's not an easy thing to do, but, you know, in the end, we then need to ask, well, where are our definitions? You know, what points can we actually affect? What do we have control over and what we don't? And when it comes to disease, we've had a century or so of being so clear on it being a medical scientific problem. We don't stop to think, what can society do? You know, we're so clear on kind of saying, well, if your legs don't work, we can build your wheelchair, we can build you an exoskeleton, we can fix your legs. You know, we don't often then say, well, can we build a ramp? Can we change society in ways to kind of deal with disability and disease as if, you know, it's a variation and there are many things that we can do to try to address that? In your book, you talk about some really interesting phenomena that were historically treated as diseases. So concepts like hysteria and nostalgia. Could you talk a little bit about these? Absolutely. So, you know, you look back through history and we um, we have different ways of defining diseases that we might be able to identify today, but there's whole areas there that were so big in terms of what we consider to be a disease that kind of fell away, which kind of shows, again, that disease has a very strong tie to culture all over the world today, but also throughout the past. So, you know, two examples. Uh, one was hysteria. So for centuries, um, we viewed female bodies in such a way that there is an organ in there, the uterus, that can move out of place or can disrupt in some way, and that can have a direct link to behaviour and explain behaviour. Um, so, you know, if, if a woman is not behaving in such a way that society might expect, we can then say, well, is it your fault or can we look to biology to explain it? And when we look to biology to explain it, there's been philosophers and anatomists over time that go, well, women are different, they've got this uterus thing. Um, there was a belief for a long time that organs weren't firmly anchored in place and could move. And then there was a hypothesis that said maybe that movement could account for behavioral differences. So the uterus was just one of them. It can move up in your chest and restrict breathing. It can move out of place and then cause all sorts of behavioral problems. And that led to some pretty heinous things. I mean, in the past, you'd have a hysterectomy, for instance, uh, in extreme cases, if you weren't behaving in a way that was to be expected. So, of course, a lot of the people who can't argue for themselves or may have other mental health issues, they were the ones who were sub, you know, subjected to, to awful tortures on this behalf. And this was something that was mentioned back in, in uh, ancient Greece, but kept coming back as a fairly fashionable type disease throughout history, all the way up to the 19th century. And it's pretty much only been in the past century or so that really what we've done is replaced this concept of the uterus being out of place with other things. You know, your hormones are acting up or it's an endocrine thing, which can be very easy to dismiss behaviours we don't like. So that's not saying that there aren't variations that people, you know, that, that could affect how the brain works. But what it is saying is quite often we go and we look for an organ or a, a biological thing and go, I don't like your behaviour, therefore we can find this, fix it, and you will now behave in a way that we like, rather than saying, well, maybe our expectations are out of place, you know, maybe uh, the way we perceive things is different. One of the other classics is something called neurasthenia, which uh, once just referred to pretty much any sort of neurological condition or anxiety, but was cemented in place as an actual mental health condition um, in the 19th century when we started to think more about how the brain worked. And there was an early model for how the nervous system worked that sort of looked at it in a very mechanical way, as if it was full of fluids and, um, you know, looking at certain energies. And so we thought, well, maybe some people who have high levels of anxiety or depression or other mental health issues, maybe they're just low on this nervous fluid in their body, this, this energy that, that uh, drives them forward. 
And so throughout the 19th century, there was started to be this thought that, well, in America especially, the world is changing. You know, we've got a society that's different today and it's busy and it's full on. And that might explain why all these people just seem to be very anxious and very nervous. And so neurasthenia became one of the, the most popular ways of describing um, health. So it, it was one of those, whatever ails you, it's probably neurasthenia. You know, if you're impotent, if you're uh, hungry all the time or you're not hungry all the time or you've got um, anything from anxiety to headaches, look, it's probably neurasthenia. And they prescribed uh, for women, it was bed rest. So you should go lay down in a dark room and read a book. Unless it's really bad, then don't read a book. Um, you know, you can be tended on by servants unless, again, it's really bad, in which case don't talk to anybody. For men, it was to go out and experience nature again. So there was a prescription of sort of like go west, young man, and, you know, experience the wild zone. That will replenish your nervous energies. And this was something that sort of persisted in, uh, in medical books right up into the mid 20th century. It was still thought in some areas to actually be a thing. But of course, we don't talk about neurasthenia anymore. It's really not a condition. You know, when it used to be number one, it, it now is not a thing. So it shows with these conditions that our understanding of what health and medicine is does shift over time. We sort of feel we're in a privileged place now where we, we feel we understand nature so much better. We've got so much more information that the reason we lost them is because we know more and, you know, they fell by the wayside. And there's truth to that. But there's also a truth to the fact that what's also changed is simply our expectations of how people should behave. So culture has shifted. And both those forces act to say conditions we used to have we don't have anymore, which sort of makes you wonder, well, what about conditions today that we think are you know, bona fide diseases? One day we might look at and go, well, the variation is there. Biology is different. But our expectations of people, our values have changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 there was a episode of uh, This American Life that talked about the effort to remove homosexuality from the DSM and how controversial that was. And that, that always stuck with me. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Homosexuality is a classic example of that where it, it you know, started as a sin and then it was actually you know, almost a, a benevol- benevolent sort of thing. You know, we, you know, there were uh, psychologists who would start to look at behaviors and go, well, maybe it's not their fault. It shouldn't be a sin, but it still became a disease. It was still an abnormality that we did not want for, for decades, you know, um, and it was in the medical books to try to fix it because this is wrong and bad. In the end, people started standing up and going, why is this bad? You know, what are expectations of, of sexuality? What are these things you don't like? And these days, it's much more broadly accepted as being a variation. It's not a disease. It's not a sin. It's there are differences and we're okay with differences. But there are still parts of society that will still treat this as an abnormality that needs to be fixed. So, you know, in, in sexuality is a perfect example that, that brings together all these elements of morality and expectation and biology that kind of says, well, how do we define that difference between what a disease is and isn't? Yeah, it was treated as a crime for a period too, wasn't it? I think with Oscar Wilde, wasn't he? He was sent to prison for being yeah. a, a sodomite. And, Absolutely. Um, so, you know, it's, it's that, that difference between what is an immoral act that we can actually punish you for because you can control versus uh, an act that, is beyond your help, but there's still that sense of if you're broken, then all it means is you can't control it, therefore an authority will. You know, if um, Oscar Wilde had been diagnosed with homosexuality, um, then it may simply have been, oh, well, we won't put you in a prison cell because it wasn't your fault, but we will take you away and put you into an asylum. You know, we will take you away and we will subject you to some pretty awful acts in an effort to change your biology um, because, you know, we now feel pity for you, but we're still going to try to take away the thing we deem to be bad. We took it all. 
we brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Hmm. Wow. Well, what what is Americanitis? I'm concerned as an American that this might be something. <laughs> I don't think I've got it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's neurasthenia, but it was a bit of a popular term for it. So, you know, neurasthenia became so associated with the American way of life. It was cheekily called Americanitis to, to sort of link it in with being an American. Um, and what's interesting is still today, you know, there's still that sense that the world is very different to the one that we used to be in, you know, the one we evolved in. And there are still questions on how does the human body actually cope with, you know, the the challenges of modern life. Um, and I think it's going to be a, a pretty perennial thing. It's something we're going to be seeing forever is this question of when there are changes in society, how does it affect us? You know, how is it, um, you know, we have light until late in the night. How does that affect our, our biological rhythms? You know, um, we look at digital technology. How is it that when we can communicate with one another at a whim, how does that affect us? You know, does that explain the, this growth in, in depression and anxiety we've seen over the years? So we're still asking these questions a good two centuries after we started looking at it. And uh, in your book too, you mentioned being left-handed and how that was once perceived. Could you tell us a bit about that too? Yeah, well, I mean, it was kind of, again, at first a sin and then a disorder. And the subtle ways that we deal with the difference um, at first might seem, again, quite a positive, benevolent thing. We stop saying you're responsible for your hand. We start saying it's not your fault. But that empathy doesn't really change much. We would still have people throughout, you know, in living memory, we can still find people who grew up in an environment where they were left-handed and they'd have an authority, a teacher, a parent, even a doctor who would subject them to... um, to really what amounts to torture in the end, you know, with physical pain or, to- or or psychological trauma in an effort to get them to change to the other, to their right hand. So, again, instead of saying it's a variation, we can live with this variation, there is a judgment of morality. There's this judgment of wrongness that kind of says, you know, this is not meeting a standard we, we like. How do we change that in some way? Uh, without ever really stopping to think maybe being left-handed really isn't a problem at all. Yeah, I, I'm a big That's fan of etymology, and I know that I used to be involved in the Society for the Creative Anachronism. So reading about heraldry and knowing that uh, sinister means left and dexter yeah. means right, and that the word sinister, you know, really 
like is tied to left-handedness is such a a, a, a strange thing to realize how uh, vilified people were for being different. And you know, I actually know people who who went to schools where they were essentially abused for being left-handed for exactly even you know they're my age that's not that long ago that they were in school (laughs) no that's it and you know it's the same all over the world so we talk about sinister which is you know a latin phrase but you can find examples of that in cultures all over the world so the very fact that there is a predominance in human physiology that that favors the right hand all over the world and the fact that you have fewer left-handed people um, that seems to bring up this cultural thing to say you're different, therefore bad or wrong in some way. Yeah, my left hand is weak. I can't use it. You can use yours. There must be something wrong and bad about you. And so that gives rise to this, this whole sense of, of sin versus disease versus normality that you know sometimes we just need to question. It makes me think of The Simpsons. Wasn't there an episode, uh, I think, with Ned Flanders who owned a <laughs> left-hand store or something? That's um, it, yeah. Appliances right. and tools for the left hand, left handed people. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Why did we uh, lose some of these diseases that are no longer considered to be real diseases? Right. So, um, there's there's many reasons behind why some diseases get abandoned as concepts. Um, you know, one thing is we we identify more things in terms of biology, physics, chemistry. So we make new discoveries, and those discoveries. Um, mean a model that we had before is no longer valid. So the the whole biomechanical, biomedical model that we use these days for disease really came out of the fact that uh, in the 19th century, we started to discover uh, bacteria. You know, we started to discover pathogens and it was really, really successful. So this whole discovery of this miniature microscopic world Um, opened up new ways to treat a whole bunch of different diseases and infections and things like that, especially once we found antibiotics. That was it. You know, we could we could actually make a whole lot of people feel a lot better and uh, prevent a lot of people from dying. So that really was a scientific advance. And we went then from medical models that trusted ancient textbooks and looking at the ancient Greeks and and trusting academics in times past to start looking at a scientific approach to medicine. You look at medicine in terms of what doctors wore and they stopped wearing clothes, you know, the, the uh, upper-class clothing that they would have had once and they started to be associated with, um, with modern scientific investigation. So they started wearing lab coats. You can see in the early 19th century, these white coats that doctors wore simply to say, I'm not just medical, I'm scientific. Um, so we started to look more for these, these physical causes. And when that changed back and forth and we started to trust more the identification of something physical, um, that changed how we saw disease. And a lot of diseases fell by the wayside. But that also set up this expectation that it, you need to find something physical in order for it to be a disease. If, you, if it's not organic, if you can't look at it and say that's different and broken, then we're not going to trust that you have a disease at all. So chronic fatigue syndrome is a classic example. You know, for decades, you've had people say, I'm suffering. You know, I don't like the way I feel. And people go, you know what, I can't find anything, so maybe you're just lazy. You know, if I can't find a break, it must be you. So that's one thing, is looking at the physical differences and the, the discoveries we've made over time. But then, of course, culture has also changed. So the expectations of people have shifted over time, what we value, what we see as normal. So, you know, we talked before about homosexuality, and I think one of the biggest things that's happened over time is having people who have variations in sexuality or in gender um, 
starting to feel like their story can be told. They can step up and say, I, I feel this way. I behave this way. Um, and it creates a dissonance in people's minds. You know, people start looking at, at, at those in their community and saying, but I like you. You're my brother. You're my sister. You're my neighbor. Um, and you're telling me you're different. That dissonance then means how do I resolve it? Do I continue to see you as broken or do I say, well, maybe that variation isn't so bad. So when people come out and, and tell their stories, again, that shifts culture. What do we expect? What do we think of as good and bad? And diseases can fall by the wayside purely because we become more aware of other stories. So there's no one reason why diseases come and go. Um, there's a lot of cultural elements that sort of affect how we define one thing as being a disease. And would you say that there's a difference between the goals of historical medicine versus the goals of modern medicine? Not really. Um, I mean, if you really think about this, there's, there's two goals really of medicine, and you can almost look at them as being a higher-level society-based goal and a low-level personal goal. So one thing we all don't want is we don't want to suffer. We don't want to get up each day and feel worse than we think we need to. And that's a bit of a cultural thing as well. Some people will sort of go, look, everyone's suffering. Everyone has aches and pains. Deal with it. Other people think, actually, this level of pain that I have, you know, I shouldn't have to cope with it. You know, I don't have to be getting up each day and feeling this ache and pain. But, you know, the bottom line is we don't want to suffer. We don't want to feel bad. On a societal level, so if you are responsible for a society and divvying up resources, you don't want to be spending undue amounts of resources um, on well-being. You kind of want to share out your resources in such a way so you can ease suffering, but then you don't want to be putting too much into one basket as well. Um, and so there is now a question that kind of say, well, how do I deal with healthcare in such a way so it provides benefits for everybody but not too much benefits? And that's what you have in governments around the world. They do it in different ways, whether it's in certain you know, uh, capitalist societies or, or a socialist society to say, how do we divvy up our resources in a fair way? Because, you know, we want to ease suffering to a certain extent. And that can create conflict. You'll have some parts of society that will make choices on their own. You know, if you look at anti-vaccination groups, they kind of say, look, chances are my kid's not going to get measles and I don't want them to take the risk. You know, I don't want them to get a vaccination and, um, and, and suffer the possible downsides. I don't want them to get a fever. Or I don't want them to actually suffer. And chances are in our society that doesn't have measles, they're not going to get measles. And if you don't give them a vaccination, well, they're going to be fine. Um, but then the rest of society says, well, we all need to be kind of making sacrifices on healthcare." So there's this antagonism that sort of exists between individuals and society. And that's, a, that's been throughout history. We've always had this kind of sense to say, how do we ease suffering in the individual? Because I empathize with you. But how do we also make that a fair and equitable system on a social level? And what is the tension that pulls back and forth and how we actually ease suffering for everybody? Has um, science-based medicine been effective uh, in removing sort of cultural biases from what we consider to be diseases, in your opinion? Oh, interesting question. Um, not really. Um, simply with the fact that what we've done is we've shifted focus of the authority from one group into another. So there's still a group of people who will determine what is and is not a disease. And when we don't, when we're not part of that conversation, 
when we're not telling our stories, um, then there's just going to be that assumption that this is a defined line. So for the past century or so, science-based medicine has done amazing things. There's one thing I try to stress in the book is I'm far from anti-science. I'm far from anti-medicine. I'm a big fan of it. It saves lives. It saved a lot of lives and it saved a lot of suffering. It's a very powerful tool. And it's so powerful. we, We put so much belief that there is a system of people to this authority who can say that is and that is not a disease. And what it does is it stops us from kind of telling our stories. You know, it stops us from kind of saying, well, this is what suffering means to me. And so for a long time, if you have people say, well, homosexuality is a disease and we can show that scientifically, we can show there's a gene that's different. We can show you the brain is a bit different. People go, oh, yeah, they found a gene or they found neuro- you know, neurons connected. Well, they found hormones out of place. Huh, I guess that's a disease. And that kind of slams in place that there is a clear, naturally defined line because science says so. What we're not doing is saying, well, variation exists everywhere and I want to tell my story and adding that human element back into it so we have a discussion, not just about what, you know, what genes we can find or what lines we can find, but what that means in an actual human story-based sense. I do think we're getting there, though. I do think science has opened up a lot in the past 10, 20 years to share stories between different areas of community. This is why we need science communicators to actually share stories. We need scientists to get out there and actually understand, you know, what does this look like in a societal way? What does this look like in a personal way? So it's a lot different these days than it used to be. And I think that's a lot of what's behind this this trend that is changing how we see medicine. Medicine is becoming more personalized. We're starting to see that everybody has different groups of genes, different microflora, different physiologies, and it comes down to a conversation that kind of says, well, how does your difference that we found scientifically make a difference to you? You know, what is that suffering that you actually have? The big problem with all of that goes back to what I was saying before about the difference between the personal experience and social resources. Um, actually having those stories, sitting and talking to your GP or, or a, a medical care provider, that takes time. That takes them understanding you. That takes you know more than a 15-minute consultation. That takes a long conversation to be had. Um, and society doesn't really see that as a valuable way to spend resources. We, we seem to be almost going the other way and trying to find more ways to cut costs so individuals don't sit and share their stories with medical care providers. Um, we've had a lot of controversy in Australia recently with a centralised database that connects together a whole lot of different medical systems, um, largely because in going into that, there's missing the point that your medical history is also a moral history. So where most of us are quite happy and, and confident to sit down and say, yeah, you know what, I've... Um, you know, I've had chicken pox. I uh, had an instance earlier in life where, you know, I sort of had some headaches. There are a lot of other people who said, I had an abortion when I was younger. Um, I've had a drug addiction. You know, I've had a couple of STIs. And that story is embedded in one place. Now, that personal story is important if we're to provide care, but it's also a moral history of many individuals. And treating this in, in that way is really important if we're to actually provide adequate care. So there's been a lot of tension in these these centralized databases that says it contains your story. How do we open that up so we provide you you with the best care without actually having an insecure or a a place that you can't control containing your medical history? So, you know, it's it's been interesting kind of looking, I guess, at that, that change over time and how we see medicine as a scientific exercise but also looking at it as a personal story-based exercise, an anecdotal one in a way. Yeah, I remember receiving frantic 
text messages from my mother saying, Karen, you've got to opt out of the Medicare healthcare record thing. And she yep. couldn't really explain why. She just said, you know, it's just not, not good for the government to have this kind of information. So uh, you know, just as a kind of default thing, I ended up uh, opting out and opting out for my son as well. Yep. And, um, yeah, I think there was quite a panic about it really in, in those last few weeks as well. Absolutely. And it's still going on because, I mean, it's still something that we can still opt out of. And oh, okay. um, in its early days, um, there was a question, do we make this opt-in or do we make it opt-out? And, you know, mm-hmm. it came down to a resource question, a question of budget. You know, if you make it opt-in, then you have to go out and convince people to join on board and hope to get those numbers up enough to make it equitable. Mm-hmm. Um, opt-out means you've already got those people in there and hopefully they won't actually ask too many questions. And in the early days when they did reviews on this thing to see, you know, how equitable it would be, um, you know, how fair would it be in terms of budget, they only guessed maybe roughly one in 10 people might opt out. Um, I'm not sure currently what the numbers are at, but there's been a lot of controversy around it, a lot of insecurity over the, the question of privacy. Um, and a lot of that is just simply this assumption that most people are quite happy to share their medical data with anybody. It didn't put the keys in the hand of the individual. And I think if those people who were setting up this system had have actually seen it differently and gone, there are a lot of people out there who see their medical history as a, you know, as a moral statement, um, mm-hmm. you know that that's a very personal thing. Um, we just don't think about it, and, and where we do, we tend to actually think, well, people deserve that. So if there is an individual who has a history of drug abuse, well, they made that choice. You know, we'll open up their history, and if they go into, you know, imagine that you have a history of opioid uh, abuse, and you go into emergency, and they see that, there's going to be that question: What sort of painkillers do we give you? Now, they wouldn't do that for anybody else. So there are these questions that sort of open up on like, well, who owns your, your medical story? On one hand, we treat it very scientifically. And so that gives the keys to the authority. What we're not doing is saying, but it's also very personal. There is a cultural aspect to this. You might want to have the keys. Yeah, and it's tricky on a lot of levels. I, in my day job, I'm an IT guy. And so dealing with uh, data issues, a lot of times the capabilities are there to, to, to learn a lot from this data but not necessarily thinking through for what the long-term consequences of having that data exposed improperly will be. And, and it's, yeah. really, it's really hard to guess that. And so things like the you know, Facebook, social media data breaches, uh, we, we don't really, I, I think, understand. We're willing to sacrifice privacy for, for like short-term benefits a lot of times without really thinking about what the long-term consequences will be. But the flip side of that is, that the power of those huge data sets of medical data might be really, really useful for helping us learn a lot more about what health really is. And that's not something Absolutely. we would understand on the, uh, so much of health and science in general is based on statistics, which really needs a lot of data. Yeah. Big data is really where it's all heading. Um, you know, that personalized medicine I was talking about before is really coming down to, um, uh, you know, getting large data sets and crunching the numbers and trying to find small variations in there, uh, whether it comes to genes or the big, you know, big futures in microflora, gut microflora, we're finding there's so many links between the species of bacteria you have in your gut and the rest of your health, even you know, mental health is, is a big field that's being linked with microflora. And that requires crunching big numbers and looking at variation over a lot, you know, large scale and, and finding relationships, which means not just looking at variation, but finding links between variation individuals. The problem with that is 
to find all those links, we need more and more information about you as an individual. So even though we might not use your name, we'll have all this information about you and we try to find links between them. But in the end, it doesn't matter if we have your name or not. We have you as a data set on record. And the question then becomes, who can access it and do we trust them? Um, a lot of people think this about security. So, you know, can somebody hack in and get it? And that is a concern. But it's also just about, well, who is the authority now? and Who are they going to be in the future? Authorities change. And so while we might all sort of think, look, I trust my government. I trust the people. I trust the scientists in charge. That's all well and good. But that data persists. And the next regime that comes in in 20 years, 30 years, who may have your information, well, they might not like you now. You know, the things that you think of right now go, look, I, I, you know, I'm fine. I'm a moral, upstanding citizen. I've got nothing to hide. But they might find something that they don't like. And it's not going to be as necessarily as invasive as, well, we're going to be sending the, you know, brown shirts around to your door and knocking. It could simply be as subtle as, well, we've now found these variations we don't like and we're going to set up a policy that means you actually suffer for that. You don't get certain types of insurance. We might find certain genes um, in, in part of the population we don't like and say, there's a good chance that that's going to give you cancer. You go, but I don't have cancer. Yeah, but you've got the gene. So we're going to deny you certain types of insurance. Um, little things we think we, we have full control over now, we might not in the future. That does not mean that we abandon this whole data collection exercise. It does mean the conversations we have around them need to be transparent and open. And we need to tell our stories. We need to say what we're afraid of and have people take that seriously. Um, so I'm just wondering if there are any modern day phenomena that are now medicalized, for example, something like uh, uh, mental illness, which you think that one day we might look at differently and perceive uh, yeah. differently? Uh, I think there's a lot of things we look at today that are already changing. Um, you know, we can look at, for instance, um, autistic spectrum disorder, ASD, um, that started off as autism and then we um, – looked at you know the additional condition of Asperger's and that was brought in. Now there's an argument to take it out again. And so we're seeing this, this fracturing. So that variation I was talking about before um, is really under the microscope now. Schizophrenia may actually be a bunch of different conditions. We may need to divide them up. Um, we, we're questioning whether obesity is a disease. You know, you see that in headlines, like, is obesity a disease? Um, without thinking, that variation that that one word actually sums up um, could be a whole mess of different things. So we're starting to actually see a whole lot of different diseases, not as single entities, this, this one category, but as something that's far more variable. And we're breaking them into smaller and smaller pieces. So I think the whole disease model in the next generation or so will have seen its time. Um, that doesn't mean we don't refer to things as diseases. That doesn't mean that things we think of as diseases now won't be referred to in a name. But I do think we're going to start seeing this whole concept of disease in a much more fractured way. Uh, those big books I was talking about before, you know, they're not going to sustain being broken into smaller and smaller codes as time goes on. Um, it's going to get to the point we'll have to start thinking, how do we actually look at a person's individual health and say, look, I've looked at your genes, I've asked you your story, I've looked at your microflora, I've looked at your, your history, and I think the fact that you've come in saying, I don't feel this or I don't feel well, I, I feel as if I put on too much weight or something, I think I've got a way to help you. And at no point are we saying, hello, here is your, your diagnosis as such. It's going to become a lot more complicated. And I think that's going to suit um, this whole tension between individual suffering and what we do in society. I think it's going to help in the long run. But it does mean the, the concept of disease will have seen its day. Fascinating. 
Well, Mike, I think this has been a really interesting conversation, and we'll put a link in our show notes to your book, and um, I hope I think the listeners will like it. But the uh, we we we've really not been on topic for monsters, which is kind of what our show's theme is typically, but that's okay. But yep, <laughs> we we do like to ask all our guests, especially in the first appearance, uh, what is your favorite monster? And I know this will seem a little weird coming out of the rest of this conversation. No, yeah, yeah, yep. Um, you know, I've, I've always had uh, a fascination with creatures out of place in time. Uh, ever since I was little, I, you know, in fact, I when I was little, I used to collect all you know books on monsters. Like, you know, I've got, in fact, I've got on my shelf still a, a book that I nicked from my grandparents called Into the Unknown, which is um, you know an old Reader's Digest book. I think that's quite common. I used to love flicking through those pages and reading stories of experiences people had. Not just with you know your traditional Bigfoot and creatures like that, but but with like dinosaurs that you know happen to be glimpsed in the jungle, or um, you know with, with pterodactyls just flying next to a plane and stuff. It just it seems so ludicrous and so crazy. And yet I think there was a part of me as a kid that sort of still wanted access to something that we just don't have anymore. I wanted to see what dinosaurs really look like. And um, so any time that we've sort of found a creature out of place for real, actual things like the coelacanth, for instance, um, I've sort of I found a real fascination with that link to something that should not exist anymore. Nice, good answer. Yeah, those, those are awesome. The, the, these, uh, we, and there's so many where they overlap on that, you know, McKinley and Mbembe and, uh, yeah. Nessie, the, these, uh, the, you know, it, 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 with the pterosaurs uh, in the American Southwest, I, I love it. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I, I, and I wish they were real, but, you know, so far, you know, no, but. <laughs> no, but there's, there's just that hope. It's like, oh, is that really what it looks like? You yeah. Know? Can, can yeah. we now all have our, our own pterodactyl enclosure somewhere, you know? Well, it's funny. <laughs> I, I, I occasionally mention this, but I, I've been, uh, you know, you go out in the wild and you, 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 Run like for me. I, I my grandfather has about 360 acres of land, and so uh, he's wow. got swamp land and you know flat land and riverbed type stuff and, and creek running through it and a lot of cattle and different things. And sometimes I would go out there and see strange things. You know, you, you're you're on the shore of a swamp and suddenly you know a beaver comes up out of nowhere and it surprises you. It's just it's very you know. Uh, it can be unsettling to see something that you don't expect, and and I've I've had yeah. some, some really strange encounters that turned out to be really mundane. But always lurking on there is the it, it's the mysterious weird explanation that pops up first. And then I have to sort of oh no, it's just a beaver. Oh no, it's just a muskrat or whatever. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I I'm always you know it's, I'm the skeptic who's always looking. I always want to see those things. So yeah, I think we all are. <laughs> thing I love about a lot of that stuff, admittedly, is what it actually shows about human culture itself. I think that's where I've sort of, you know, when I was little, I really hoped a lot of these things would exist. And then you kind of go through that period of disappointment where you, you're trying hard. You know, I, I was a big alien fan when I was a kid and, you know, was both terrified of the concept of aliens and yet thrilled that one day first contact might be made. And so all these UFOs. And I then went through the phase where you look at the past and how the culture of what constitutes you know, your, your stereotype alien changed. You know, you go through your Nordic phase and your robot phase and then there's the grey phase. And I then shifted looking at it from a disappointment of, oh, wouldn't it be, you know, it's a shame these aliens don't exist to, wow, this really shows how humans think about themselves. And so I kind of 
went from being fascinated in the paranormal from a I wish it was real phase to this really is, is a fascinating way to understand humanity and how we operate. Absolutely. I think we've come to the same conclusion. Yeah. yeah. Well, cool. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, Not thank at all, you. No, Everyone needs to, to go out and get your book. And um, could you recommend where is the, the best place to get it from? Because it's well, a little inaccessible in some ways. It is in, yeah, it's inaccessible in the US. I mean, you could probably, I, I think booktopia.com might have it. So, you know, you can order it. Um, otherwise, and Amazon. Most, yeah, uh, most bookshops in Australia um, will will have copies of it still. So Dimmick's, they stock it. Um, I've, I've been into a lot of independent bookstores will stock it. It's easy to order in. So if you're in Australia, not a problem. Overseas, I do know some friends in the UK and the US have had success uh, just ordering it through booktopia.com. We'll, we'll put a link of that to that in the show notes. And I know that we have a lot of listeners down under, so I'm sure they'll be able to take advantage of it. That'd be great. All right. And thank you so much, guys, for inviting me on. Thank you so much. It was good to hear from you. All right. Well, have a good day. We'll have good nights. Good good day for him. Good night for us. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. You've been listening to an interview with author Mike McRae, whose new book, Unwell, discusses the meaning of the entire concept of disease. Mike's book is only easily available in Australia, but we have put a link to it at Booktopia in our show notes at monstertalk.org, where he says you can get the book stateside if you're interested after hearing this discussion. Monster Talk's an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed here are those of myself and my guests, and don't necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks so much for listening. For more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today.